Welcome to the Thinking Church podcast with Lee Button and me, Chris Bright. Thinking Church exists to help your church thrive by helping you think through key strategic topics of church life. Each week we'll be tackling a different subject of church life and we'll be joined by some special guests along the way. So if you like this podcast, why not give us a like, give us a rating and give us a review as well. So without further ado, get your thinking caps on and let's get on with this week's episode. Hi there, welcome to this week's episode of the Thinking Church podcast. And this week we are talking all about church mergers. Before we get into that, I just want to let you know that if you are thinking about reopening your building after lockdown, then we have a COVID-19 checklist, which is specifically designed to help your church think through reopening your building. It's There's so many questions that you need to think through. And it's not easy at all. There's so many things that you'll easily forget about how you're going to label this and mark that up. And it, you know, it can be really difficult. So our COVID-19 checklist kind of covers, covers it all for you. So you don't have to think of anything. And uh, you can get that from our website, uh, www.thinking.church. And on the menu on our website, there, there's a link there to that COVID-19 checklist. It's £49.99 and you can get it on there and we pray that it's a real uh, help to you as you are as we're sort of moving out of this COVID-19 period. Okay on to this week's episode and this week I was speaking uh, with Jim Tomberlin. Jim Tomberlin is a uh, he's an Unstuck consultant. Unstuck are our partners over in the US and Jim is a, a long time expert of multi-site and church mergers and he has written a book all about church mergers. Better Together is the is the book's name, and we'll put a link to that book in the show notes. It's a, a, a reissue of it. It's been updated and expanded, and uh, w- this is a really key conversation, especially coming out of COVID nineteen, where some churches are thinking, okay, what is there for my congregation and our congregation in this time? It, have we got a church left? And actually. Um, thinking about mergers can be a really healthy thing. I think in the UK, we've been often been put off by the thought of a merger because it sounds like a a bad thing. It's getting rid of a church, but it doesn't have to be. And in this conversation, we really unpack that about why mergers are a great thing. So without further ado, here's our conversation with Jim Tomberlin. Well, hi, Jim. Thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, you've got quite a long history with working with church mergers. Could you just tell us about how you got started with the journey of helping churches merge? Well, first of all, Chris, it's great to be on your program today. Thank you for the invitation. Uh, my journey with, multi- with uh, mergers really began when I was leading the multi-site strategy at Willow Creek Church in Chicago. In, in the year 2002, I had a Uh, We had about 150 people from Willow Creek. We we were going to launch a campus in another part of Chicago. Uh, We knocked on the door of a public school to see if we could, of a private school to see if we could rent space from there and discovered that there was a church already meeting in there. I left my business card and said, if anything changes, let me know. Well, that church called me that week and said, we understand that Willow Creek wants to uh, rent this space out to uh, have a church here. Um, we're meeting here, but we we are without a pastor, and uh, would you we'd like to join you? And like most pastors uh, who are kind of 
the idea of a merger. Initially, it was I was very reluctant and um, uh, not so sure about that. And, and so, but we sat down, we talked. Uh, it was really evident. I gave every reason why they shouldn't do this, and that was every reason they wanted to do it. <laughs> you know, that we we are. Uh, Willow Creek. We have a certain way of doing church. It's not only it's not necessarily the only way, but it's our way. And um, you know, and we have a different approach to ministry and all that. And every reason I gave them not to join us, they that was why they wanted to join us. So we ended up joining together. They joined with us. We rented that space. There's 150 of us, 150 of them. 300 of us jo- uh, launched in 2003. And um, to roll fast forward to today, there's over 2,000 people now meeting in a. Uh, a new building that was bought, bought or uh, built by the church and um, nearby. And so uh, when I, all that happened, I, I uh, filed that away in my mind saying, wow, um, that was a great experience, had a great outcome and didn't, ex- didn't see that coming. Several years later in 2005, I left Willow Creek to be a full-time consultant to churches and helping them in the multi-site model. And we were discovering that there were a lot of um, uh, churches multi-site churches that were having the same experience. And I found myself doing a lot of merger consulting as a result of uh, multi-site churches acquiring campuses, facilities through a merger. And we discovered that um, the majority of those uh, um, merger uh, situations were initiated by the, not, not the lead church, but the joining church. We'll talk about what that means in a minute. But um, today we know over 40% of multi-site campuses have come as a result of a church merger. Wow. So that's that's quite a lot, 40%. In 2012, we did a survey of churches across America, and we discovered about 30% of multi-site campuses had come as a result of, of a merger. Uh, we did a survey last year in 2019, and that number had climbed to 40%. And so we're seeing that clearly is uh, increasing. And for churches in the UK, they probably many churches haven't really thought about merging maybe much before. But with COVID nineteen starting to ease, I'm starting to think that you know maybe there's some churches in the UK that will be surprised by how much rebuilding that they will actually need to do. So why do you think that merging is a, a credible option for churches? Well, Chris, I would uh, say just like. Uh, in the U.S., the majority of churches in the U.K. are vulnerable. Uh, they're stuck in the 20th century thinking. Uh, they're declining in attendance and struggling financially. That was pre-COVID. And so uh, many of them will not survive post-COVID. Uh, but there's a better option. They could merge with a healthy church and be better. And so we will see, we are already seeing an increase in mergers as a result of covid and we anticipate more here in the U.S., and I anticipate the same thing for the U.K. And I'm sure that there have been church mergers that you've seen in the past that have probably, they've probably made some mistakes along the way. Uh, what are some of the biggest mistakes that you've seen when you've been helping churches that have been merging, whether, you know, whether you've come in afterwards and you've, you're picking up the mistakes of a failed merger, merger or things you've just learned along the way? What, what are some of the big mistakes that uh, you've seen when helping churches? Well, Chris, I would say there's two big mistakes that churches make when they approach this conversation topic of merging or the idea of merging together. First of all, uh, going into a merger, not understanding that all mergers, 
all mergers are like a slow dance where one church leads and the other church follows. It's very important to understand that at the beginning of the relationship. And the second thing is not clearly defining the merger relationship. And as you know, in our book, Better Together, Making Church Mergers Work, we defined or described four different kinds of merger types or models. And it's very important going into this, into this uh, conversation with the church is to get real clarity about which kind of model are we talking about is our merger and yeah. what church is the lead church and the follow church. Yeah, well, I'd love to, to pick up on that, about that sort of slow dance with the lead church and the, the following church. Could you just unpack what you mean by that? Well, we do say that all church merges are like a slow dance where one leads and the other follows because you can't have two leads in a dance. Now, both partners in a dance are valuable and equal in value, but they're not equal in um, um, leadership or followership. And so um, one leads and one follows. You can't have two leads in a dance. And if you have two follows, followers at a dance, then they're all over each other's toes. And so uh, both partners are important and valuable, but one has to lead and the other has to follow. And, cl- and you have to establish that up clearly up front. Now, um, the, we, we described that the, the lead church really is the primary culture and DNA that the joining church will uh, come under and into on the other side of the merge. With um, with churches that are merging, when if you've got a lead church and a following church, is it that the the lead pastor of of the merged church will, will normally come from the lead church? Is that what you normally find, or is there some flex around that? No, the kind of mergers we're describing today that have a good uh, outcome are we're clearly are more mission driven mergers versus survival driven mergers. That is where one church joins another one. That is, they're they're embracing the vision, the mission, the uh, philosophy of the lead church. That's what makes these work. It's not two churches coming together trying to make uh, be co-equals or partners and each uh, doing different things. But it's really coming under uh, being united under a common mission, vision, and leadership. And typically, the lead church is uh, it, because it has clarity about its mission and its philosophy and its strategy, its discipleship pathway. Uh, God is blessing, is giving favor to that, has seen some growth. And typically the joining church is either stuck or struggling. And because they've sort of lost their way about how to do ministry, uh, they're not learning how to be effective or they're stuck in an old way of doing ministry that's no longer effective. And so they're joining with them uh, with a lead church and say, we embrace your philosophy, your, your mission, your strategy, it's working. And, and we would like to join with you in that. Those have great outcomes. Um, but that's what we're seeing now. And that's a different kind of merger of the mergers of the past, which were more survival driven. How do we survive at the expense of each other? Yeah. And, yeah, not, will, and not willing to change, you know, for uh, going forward. Yeah. Well, let's get into those four models of uh, of church mergers. Uh, so the first one that you talk about is a a rebirth merger. What is what is that? Describe that for me. Another way to say rebirth is a, is where is an absorption. A rebirth merger is like an absorption. It's where um, uh, a struggling or declining or dying church gets a second life, gets a a, a rebirth, a new chapter 
by being fully absorbed and restarted under a stronger, vibrant, typically larger church. And so that's a rebirth. And I would say most mergers are rebirths. Yeah. So, and that would be then that the, the church congregation gets absorbed into the main congregation. Is that normally yes. how it works? Yes. Yes. Great. And, okay. or, or the, um, if it's a multi-site outcome where we, the, the joining church is, has a facility and uh, they join the lead church and it's a multi-site church or they want to become multi-site, then they rebirth back or relaunch back into that location with uh, not only the people that were originally in the joining church, most of them do stay, uh, but they also infusing that location with fresh DNA from the lead church by the people who live in that community, who now can go to that location as a part of the lead church um, multi-site model. So the second type is an adoption merger. How is that different from a rebirth merger? Well, a uh, adoption merger, uh, a good word to describe an adoption is integration, where rebirth is more like a fully absorbed uh, congregation, but many times in the rebirth, uh, there may be a building and some people, uh, and that's about all they bring to the table. Now, by the way, let me just say, the people is the greatest asset in any merger. Sometimes a facility comes with it, sometimes not. But many times in a rebirth, they really don't bring a whole lot of anything else. They, there may not be any staff people. Their programs are really uh, not, you know, brought into the lead church. But in an adoption, it's a church that um, uh, has some things besides some pe- besides people and, and besides a facility. They bring maybe some programs, some. Uh, outreaches, some staff people that would that get integrated into and under that lead church. So they're bringing something a little more to the party, so to speak, than often a rebirth church that really just, they um, have nothing beyond just their heart and talent and, and uh, passion to bring to the, um, to the lead church. The, um, the third type of merger is, is a marriage. Mm-hmm. So that's obviously going to be different from a, an adoption. If you were thinking of the kind of the, the, the picture, it's very different. How how does that look like, and, how, and what's the journey steps that you're going to take to get to yeah. a marriage? Uh, a marriage merger is uh, better described as a realignment of two churches that are coming together, and together they are creating a new mission and vision uh, uh, under a united banner. So it's kind of like two people when they come to marriage, they, they bring their strengths and weaknesses to a marriage and they create something new together. Now, let me say uh, marriage mergers are very rare. It's a rare church that's a marriage because marriage implies partnership, equality. And even in a marriage merger, there's even when they both are similar in health and size, uh, there's usually one that leads and one that still follows uh, in that situation, but there's, it's, it's a rare church that truly comes as two equals, uh, a rare church merger that comes as two equals. Uh, so we, there, sometimes we use that language, but it's sometimes that language can be very misleading because it implies equality in most marriages. I mean, I mean, I'm saying most mergers are not two equals coming together. It's one lead and one follows one yeah. leads, one joins. 
Of, of those three, the rebirth, adoption, and, and marriage, which is the which is the most common that you've you've come across? Well, again, we'd say the rebirth is the most common because in America, eighty percent of churches are either plateaued, st- stuck, struggling, or on life support, and so. Um, Many of those, uh, especially the ones on life support or or in um, preservation mode, they need a rebirth. Now, many times they don't see it as a rebirth; they see it more like an adoption. And it's okay to use those language, that, those words that are most helpful uh, to explaining this to your congregations. But um, many of them really are more like a rebirth than. Uh, but a growing number are adoptions where churches are saying, "We're stuck. We can survive, but you know, we could do better." And we bring something um, that adds something to the lead church as well. And so uh, we're seeing more and more of those um, uh, move forward as well. And the fourth type is uh, is actually one that you advise against, which is an intensive care, or as you would describe the USA version is the an ICU merger. Could you describe what that is and why it's probably not the healthiest idea for a church merger? Well, those are the mergers that are really uh, are totally survival uh, driven, both churches. And the other three, there's there, there many times it is an issue about surviving either financially or just surviving. Um, we may have the money, but we don't know how to do ministry in the 21st century like your church does. And so, uh, but in these, in an ICU kind of merger, it's two uh, churches who are on life support who decide, and that's what ICU is, you know, the intensive care unit is you go there to get life support with the hope that you, <laughs> they can revive you so you can live. And so these are two churches that are, are really at a, at a desperate place, in trouble, probably not going to make it. And then they join together with the hope that we could survive at the expense of the other, kind of like two, two, two people drowning to, and they grab onto each other and hold help trying to survive at the expense of the other. And so those are typically the mergers that we often think of in the past, uh, you know, 20 years ago when uh, people talked about church mergers, that, that's kind of what they thought of. And that's why there was a very um, a negative attitude about in, a baggage around the word merger is that it's kind of a failed strategy. It's, um, uh, it's a lose-lose situation. And, but what we're seeing today in the States um, and growing is, you know, a different kind of merger, a mission-driven, purpose-driven merger uh, where one church embraces the vision, the mission of another. And, um, and, and this is why we're seeing a very effective and successful outcome and a growing uh, embracing of a merger as a viable option for churches, both strong churches and struggling churches. Yeah. And I think with, churches coming out of this COVID period, I think the temptation could be, you know, if you're thinking, gosh, I'm not sure how much of my congregation is coming back. And, you know, there's a lot of statistics flying around already to say that congregation sizes are going to be down post COVID. And I think the temptation is to, you know, look at the church down the street and think, oh, you're struggling as well. We're struggling. Maybe if we join forces, we may not struggle again, but actually that's actually something you'd advise against because it's, you know, if, if you've got two unhealthy churches, you're just, you're not going to come together and make one healthy church. Unless they're willing to create a, a, a new mission and vision and strategy together, but that's very rare. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. 
Okay, so um, I've actually been writing about uh, church mergers the other day, and I was I was likening it to a show that I think you have in the US, and we have it in the UK. It's called uh, Married at First Sight. It's um it's quite a morally questionable show because it kind of makes a bit of a mockery of of marriage, uh, but it's 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 fascinating because it's it's talking about what happens when you just go from zero to marriage and there's just no lead up time and. I, that concept made me think a little bit about church mergers because I think before we we don't think about the timescales involved for a merger. We think that we can go from, you know, zero to merger straight away or the opposite end, which is, you know, maybe take, you know, 10 years to merge. Mm-hmm. What's a healthy timescale to think about merging two churches? Uh, Chris, you know, um, Last year, we took a survey across the U.S. of uh, nearly 1,000 churches who had experienced a church merger. And we asked them, by the way, we have 26 facts that came out of that. That's in our updated version of our book, Better Together. But one of the questions we asked was about how long did it take from your initial conversation about a merger with another church until the the day of approval or vote or affirmation? And the response to that was an average of about eight months from the first conversation to the final decision to do it. Uh, and we have found that um, many mergers may take happen in less time, and some will take maybe a little longer, up to a year. But it's, it's been our observation that the biggest detriment to a merger is time. Um, the longer the conversation, the more likely uh, a merger will not happen. Now, though every merger is different, there are key components of the merger conversation that fit into five stages that we have described in courtship language. Great. Well, let's let's unpack those those five stages now. What what are the five stages that make up a, a successful merger? Well, we we talk about the merger conversation is really revolves around three big questions, and then those questions unfold in five stages. So here are the three questions. Uh, first question is: Is this merger possible? Two pastors or a pastor and a chairman of a board or or denominational leader will get together and say, uh, uh, begin the conversation and about the possibility of merging. And they decide, you know, it's possible. We're in the same denomination, we're in the same network, we're in the same community, uh, we, there's affinity with us or possibility. Uh, so it's clearly possible. That's the first question. That starts with the two pastors or the two church leaders. Uh, the second question is, okay, it's, it's, a, it's a nice idea, but is it really feasible? Is it a feasible, uh, can we do this? And we've identified 25 distinct issues that every church merger uh, has to address uh, if, they want, if they end up merging together. Now, most of those issues are not um, deal breakers, but there's usually four or five that are potential, uh, you know, are. And so each church has their, their issues will be different. But they got to wrestle, walk through those together. Typically, as the church leadership does this, and uh, and after they've worked through those twenty-five issues, and they realize, you know what, we've worked through these. We could we could do this. This is feasible. Um, third question is okay. It's feasible. The is but is it desirable? And for most churches, that especially for the joining church, the con- the local congregation uh, needs to approve this either by a vote or by an affirmation of, of, of the boards or the elders or the denomination leaders who have decided this is what's best. And so um, those are the three big questions. 
is it possible? Is it feasible? Is it uh, desirable? Chris, we, uh, we talk about those three questions walking through five stages in the merger conversation. And we use this uh, language of, uh, of dating, uh, the ex- exploration stage, when two church leaders uh, begin to date each other in the sense they're exploring the idea of maybe a merger is a possibility for us. Uh, that moves into negotiation stage, which is more like the courtship. When you start dating, now you start really looking at each other through the eyes of maybe there's a marriage in the future. There's a, you know, joining together in the future. And then you start working through how you're like, what you're, things you're like and how things are the same, things are different. And uh, are we compatible and all that? And, and if they, that, as that grows, it moves into a declaration stage where it's more like what we call an engagement in America. Do, do you, is that what it's called yep. in the UK? Uh, yep. Same in the hey, UK. You know, we, we've, we've got to know each other. We, we really feel like we want to live together. And, uh, and now we want to make an announcement, a declaration uh, of our engagement or our intention to get married. And then the fourth stage is that wedding, that actual uh, cons- consolidation of uh, the two churches coming together. And you know, there's a formal process for that and celebration of the past and embracing of the, new, of, the fu- of the future. And so now the two churches have become one. And now the final phase is integration, where after that wedding, after they voted and approved and joined together, uh, now we're working on the integration. How do we now truly live together as one, either in one location or one church in two locations? And so we talk about you know dating, courtship, engagement, wedding, marriage process. Uh, All that taking about average of about eight months on, on average. You have to realize too, uh, if you drag out the merger conversation, Chris, churches can't live in that... Um, uh, world where there's where they're not certain what the what the what the next few months is going to be like. You yeah. know, we have the fall seasons coming up, the school season, the Christmas season, the Easter season, and if if we don't know if we're going to be merged or not, it, it you you really it needs to take less than a year because you can't put all these things on hold. Um, especially while these conversations are very confidential at the leadership level for uh, the first couple months, for sure. How um... How long do you find that, you know, there, there will be some churches that are more aligned than others when they're merging together. How long do you normally find for churches to where culturally that full integration has, has taken place? Is that something that takes years after, you know, after the, you know, the contracts are signed and the names are changed and all that kind of thing? You know, how long does that take before a church, um, two churches merging together really feel like they are? one church you know how, how long does that usually take that that cultural well, integration the conventional wisdom 10 years ago was that it took five to ten years for that to happen but our experience has been one to three years and we talk about three three milestones of a uh, and goals for a merge to merge churches the first stage is stabilization that is many times a, a joining church is in decline it's struggling financially, losing people, uh, and then they join a lead church. And so how do we establish, stabilize that, that location, that congregation? Um, 
Second is once you get stabilization, how can, can we start growing? I just, I believe it's God's desire for every local church to be a vibrant, growing church, um, a prevailing church. And so stabilization, growth, and then as a church begins to grow and new people start to coming and we adding uh, services and that sort of thing, the third stage is multiplication. Now, can we birth something out of that? Can we uh, uh, start another church out of that? I just believe that's in the DNA of every living thing, to be a blessing, to be reproduce, and then to multiply. You know, God said to, the, to Adam and Eve to, that the Bible says that he blessed them and said to them, be fruitful, that's reproducing, and multiply. That's when the children have children, the babies have babies, the in in the context of the church, local churches are all about making disciples. That's really what this is all about. Making disciples who make disciples who make disciples. Yeah, that's absolutely great. Absolutely. Okay. So in the post COVID world, there's going to be many churches that won't be financially viable. There's reducing congregations as we've we've spoken earlier about uh, and churches that maybe can't afford to stay open what steps would you recommend that churches take if they're starting to think about potentially merging? Well, I think first of all, uh, churches ought to, the first thing to do is define reality. Uh, where are we as a, in our church life cycle? You know, at the Unstuck group here in the U.S. that you and I are working and, and affiliated with, uh, we have seven different stages of the life cycle of a local church. And, you know, we have a self-assessment tool on our website where over 10,000 churches have uh, taken that assessment to determine where are we on the life cycle? Are we strong? Are we stuck? Are we struggling? Uh, There's actually seven different categories that we, as you know, have uh, used to describe where churches are on their journey. And so I would say, first of all, defining reality, getting a real clear picture. Am I I a lead church in in terms of being a strong church or am I, would I be more of a joining church? Now, uh, I think secondly, uh, is read the book, uh, read better together, making church mergers work, the expanded and updated version that just came out uh, in to, uh, this month in 2020, uh, August, 2020, uh, that will there in our book, we really talk about the benefits of church mergers, uh, the process. Uh, uh, we wanted to get, we gave a roadmap, a guidebook to help churches really guide them through this process uh, where they can begin to, uh, have a guidebook to walk them down through that journey. And so I think that's very helpful just to get the concept in their head. But then I think um, initiate the conversation. If you're a joining church uh, and you see, you know, maybe we would be better together to join with a church that we respect, admire, that's in our community. Um, and we talk about four diagnostic questions, Chris, that would help you to determine whether a merger is viable uh, with another church that you're in potential conversation with. First of all, question would be, would our congregation be better by merging with my congregation, the one that I lead? Would it be better by merging with another church rather than staying separate? Could I actually be a stronger, better church? Secondly, could we accomplish more together than we could separately? There's that synergistic uh, outcome, the two of us together. A uh, third question, would, would my community be better served if I if we join together with this other church? Um, and then lastly, and really the most importantly, could the kingdom of God be further enlarged by us joining together? We think that those, any, a yes to any one of those or all of those would say, you're a good candidate to uh, 
consider joining another church. And then I would say a fourth step would be um, seek help from your denomination or your network or from the thinking church uh, consulting group that you're part of there in the UK. Uh, Emergers really need a third party to uh, guide them through some of those delicate conversations. Now, we wrote the book for churches where they really are totally in alignment, I mean, uh, congruent with each other. And uh, I've had some churches over the years write me and say, uh, we we read your book, we followed the guidelines, and we had a great outcome. Others, the majority would say, we read your book, uh, we need your help. And so either way, we wrote it to be a guidebook with or without a, you know, a guide. But, um, but normally, a third party is needed in these kind of delicate conversations. So let's talk about um, if your church is the lead church, what what advice would you give to them? Because it's a different experience than if if your church is, you know, struggling and you're thinking, wow, if we just joined with that church, we could do more together. But if you're the lead church, how would you, what sort of steps can you take to to approach that? Well, it's interesting, Chris, in our surveys, um, we discovered that the majority of the conversations, the merger conversations, were initiated by the joining church, not by the lead church. Sometimes this perception is this, this big lead church that is kind of gobbling up these small churches or, you know, taking them over and all that. Or just the opposite. It's the majority typically start the conversation or the joining church. But there's over the years, I've had a lot of pastors here in the States say, Jim, um, how do we initiate this conversation as a lead church without coming off as abrasive or arrogant or uh, hostile. And because, but we, because we, we care about these churches that are declining, they're in our community and, you know, we have a need, we're growing, we're out of room, out of space, they're declining, they have space and facilities that are being underutilized, you know, in, in the path they're on, many times it's going to end up being sold to a bit, to some business or turned into a bar or, a, you know, and I know that's happening in the UK a lot as well. Yep, yep. And, and it's like, you know, in our desire to not be uh, misinterpreted or misunderstood, we, we, we let a kingdom property, so to speak, uh, you know, we, we lose it just because we, did, we were afraid that we might offend somebody. And so how do we do this in a good way? So we talk about uh, for a lead church pastor to follow the three R's, uh, relationship, resource and risk. What we mean by this is that the best mergers always come out of a a prior relationship where there's a foundation of two pastors, two churches that know each other. And there's, there's a relationship that that's already there. Uh, And so if you don't have those relationships, um, you know, initiate those. The, and then, then the second thing, step would be resource them. If you're a lead church, God has given you favor. You've seen some growth. You've learned some things uh, share whatever you, your resources with, uh, with other churches that may would be a beneficiary of that. We saw a lot of that during this, or seen a lot of that during this COVID time, where, where a lot of the, the lead churches across the U.S. are offering their, their recording studios to small churches if they want to get their services online, or they're helping them to give, show them how they can give online to their people, uh, you know, encouraging them. So the re- resource and partner with them in the community. 
Uh, and then the, the last R, risk, that is take, uh, take the risk and make the ask. Ask a church, you know, would, it be, would we be better together by joining together? Would you consider joining us? Um, if nothing else, at least ask, could we rent your facility? Because we want to launch a, a church, a congregation, or a campus into your facility. It's sitting empty, mostly empty. We, we pay you for that. You know, make the ask. Uh, suggest the, the idea of merging or joining together. And so, uh, and when we churches do that, uh, we've had some, some pet churches in the last several years send out a letter to uh, a part of the town community where they want to launch another location. And they would send out letters to those churches, very well done, written, very, very gently, just saying, you know, we are looking to launch a, a congregation in that community. We're not coming there. We already have a number of people that live in that community. We're looking for a facility. Would you be willing to rent your space to us or even join us? And every time we send that letter out, there's one or two, three churches that say, let's talk. So, Wow. Wow, that's amazing. And I guess, you know, for church leaders of, the, you know, of leading church you know of those kind of leading churches that's got to be a difficult thing to work through is it a, a thing that we say at thinking church that we uh is to be uh don't be empire builders be kingdom builders and it well, and it yeah and but but the great thing i think is with with mergers it really falls in that kingdom i mean i think we we'd be worried that it would fall in that empire building category mm -hmm. but it, it really doesn't have to and i think what i what i love hearing from you about is that it can fall under that kingdom building category completely i i like your contrast there and exact we actually have a chapter in our book uh, about how do you uh, become a church merge a, a merger friendly church and we talk about the leadership of a church that says how do we uh, be a merger friendly how do we be a that kind of church that would be welcomed uh, as uh, as a lead church by a joining church and we talk about three basic characteristics and you just named one of them uh, we talked about for the first characteristic of a merger friendly leader is humility um, that is a church is uh, a lead church pastor may see grow has seen growth and god's favor and all that and uh, you could you could easily be arrogant or proud about that but um, humility is not being arrogant. It's not having all the answers. It's not being a know-it-all. You know, I had heard a story recently about when Benjamin Disraeli and William Gladstone were running for prime minister in Great Britain back in the 1800s. And a reporter met with both of them. And the reporter wrote in the article, when I met with William Gladstone, I came away thinking he was the smartest man on earth. But when I met with Benjamin Disraeli, I came away from that interview thinking I was the smartest person on earth. That's wow. the way he made me feel that way. And uh, by the way, he, Disraeli won by a huge margin <laughs> because there was a humility there. Even though he was a smart man, he made the other person feel important and valued and all that. And I think this is the heart of a, of a, of a merger-friendly pastor. Uh, humility goes a long way in a merger. One pastor said in our book, the largest room in the world is the room for improvement. <laughs> oh, that's great. Yes, absolutely. Now, you already mentioned the other one. Uh, the second characteristic of a merger-friendly leader is that they're kingdom-minded 
not empire minded, you know, building their own empire, but they're yeah. really God's kingdom minded and they care about other churches in their community. They're collaborative. They're co- cooperative. They look for opportunities to partner together. They're aware of the other churches. They're, they're available to the other churches. Their attitude is we are as only as strong as our weakest church in our community. Uh, and we all, we are a part of the body of Christ, different expressions, different tribes. We like to say, or, denominations or whatever but uh we if we if we follow if we are followers of jesus and and obey his word we we are united around that we and we all rise or fall together in our local communities united we stand divided we fall and there's there's that sense of we, we we're all on the same team and um and we all need each other so i think that kingdom mindedness and and they care about those uh, the churches by the way in our surveys we asked what were the reasons lead churches, why you merged, why you did a merger. What were the primary reasons? The two primary reasons was, first of all, revitalization of the struggling churches in our community. We cared about that. We thought maybe this would be a way we could be stronger together. And secondly, uh, outreach. You know, we wanted to reach more people. And so um, that kingdom-mindedness, though, is a key factor for a merger-friendly leader. And then thirdly, compassionate. A merger-friendly leader is someone who understands the grieving process of the joining church. You know, for, a, for the lead church, they really don't have a lot of sacrifice, except it's going to cost us maybe money to, you know, restore, upgrade a facility that we inherit. Uh, there, there's some um, readjusting of people and moving of staff and things around. But, but there's not a lot of sacrifice for the lead church beyond financial. Um, but for the joining church, they're sacrificing everything. In a, in a merger, there's, there's, a, there's always a legal dis, uh, dissolving of one of the churches. And so yeah. uh, that means that the, the joining church, typically, their name goes away. Their, uh, their um, staff, you know, either is rehired or, you know, redeployed or moves them on. The, the board, the, the, all, 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 the, all that's over. Uh, but um, that chapter for that church ends. And this is, the, this is the good news. Their story doesn't end. That chapter ends. But their story continues on under a new you know, leader, under a new pastor. But, uh, but a merger-friendly leader understands that, the, that these churches will go through the five stages of grief, you know, denial, bargaining, anger, depression, finally acceptance. You know, this is the church where uh, my children were baptized, where they, where I got married, where I dedicated my children to, to God, where I donated my tithes and offerings, and I buried my loved ones, you know, as a part of this church. And now I'm turning that all over to someone else. And that's, and even when they realize it's the best thing, it's the right thing, it's the thing that we should do, it's still not easy. There's a grieving process. And a lead, a merger-friendly leader is going to be sympathetic and understanding of the compassion of that. You know, I love the words of the Apostle Peter in the uh, message translation that I think really summarizes what a merger-friendly leader is. Peter writes, summing up, be agreeable, be sympathetic, be loving, be compassionate, be humble. That goes for all of you. No exceptions. Bless. That's your job, to bless. You'll be a blessing and also get a blessing. That's, That's a great. great lead church pastor. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Uh, Jim, thank you so much for your, for your time today. Just, just wondering whether you have a, any final thoughts just before we, uh, before we finish. Uh, Chris, I always like to close these conversations with quoting Solomon in, from Ecclesiastes 4, 9, and 12, where he said, two are better than one. 
Why? Because they have a good return for their labor. Though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. We can be better together, stronger together. Brilliant. Jim Tumberland, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you, Chris. Great to be with you. Well, a massive thank you to Jim Tomberlin for joining us for this week's episode. And I hope that this episode has really helped you think through church mergers. And maybe a church merger is right for your church. If that is the case, like Jim said, getting a third party on board to help you work that out is really, really important. And at uh, Thinking Church, we can help you do that. Just go to our website, www.thinking.church, and you can get a free one-hour consultation with us to do just to talk that through and I hope that's helpful for you we will see you again for next week's episode bye-bye